Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. I am your host, Carl Jensen, with Doug Cunnington. And we have a very awesome guest today. Tell us who you are and what you do. Oh, thanks. Uh, my name is Scott Rickens, and I created a project called Playing With Fire. And uh, I was inspired by the likes of uh, one Carl Jensen over here. And, uh, and so I'm very happy to be here this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Let's get right into it. How did you discover fire? I was uh, I was trying to figure out how to increase my income because I was feeling totally pinched in the bank account. And I was listening to all different kinds of podcasts about entrepreneurship and what was going to be my next big idea. And one of those podcasts was Tim Ferriss, uh, the Tim Ferriss Show. And he had a, uh, a guest on one morning uh, named Mr. Money Mustache. And uh, that guy enlightened me to the idea of taking care of the money I was already making instead of just trying to make more of it. Um, and that was like a massive, humongous light bulb moment for me and a total trajectory changer for the rest of my life. That's cool. Where were you listening to it when you heard this podcast? I was walking my newborn daughter in the little Bjorn so she would fall asleep because that's what it took uh, for hours and hours on end on a little island called Coronado, um, which is uh, off the coast of San Diego. Yeah, I know Coronado and San Diego is great. So I'm curious, when I first, I discovered fire through Mr. Money Mustache too. And one of the first things I did is I I was working in my office. I was supposed to be working. Obviously, I wasn't because I was reading Mr. Money Mustache articles. But after I read it and realized fire was a thing, I'm, I ran over to the kitchen. I'm like, hey, wife, Mindy, da 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 yelled at her about this. What did you do? Did you go home with similar enthusiasm to Taylor? I did. I did almost the exact same thing. Yeah. I was shooting her emails with like articles I was re reading that really pertain to our situation. And um, and then I'd sit there and kind of wait for some response. And Taylor wasn't bringing it up to me at the dinner table. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So, uh, yeah, my enthusiasm was way, way up in the clouds. And Taylor wasn't even, you know, mentioning the articles I was sending her. So I could tell something was amiss. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I remember Honestly, I remember the the the, the shift. I remember um, going down the rabbit hole through Mr. Money Mustache, and then ended up on the Mad Scientist podcast at, at some point because I think I was searching for podcasts or any kind of content that had Pete, and uh, Pete being Mr. Money Mustache, and um, and I found the Mad Scientist through that and through that searching, and then went down his rabbit hole, which essentially made me feel like I was listening to like all of the OGs and originators of the idea of Phi. And, uh, and so that was really, really exciting. And I remember starting to dive in deeper into Brandon's blog. And there was a post specifically where uh, his wife, Jill, had sort of um, hesitant. She was sort of hesitant with the whole thing. She wasn't really into it like Brandon was. And then one day the light bulb hit for her and she realized why Brandon was really pursuing this. And it was about happiness and it was about freedom. And she kind of had that reckoning. And just the way they talked about it and the way they approached each other um, with that whole happiness bent, I realized that I needed to come at Taylor less about, hey, this is going to fix our finances and more, hey, let's get aligned with what brings us happiness and then let's pursue that. Uh, and that was the sort of mental shift for me that started to work where it started to open up the ability to have that conversation with Tay, um, so that I wasn't just depriving her of whatever things she wanted to keep around in her life, but instead we were realigning our, our values with our goals. And what year was that Tim Ferriss podcast? 
Do you remember? Uh, that was 2017. I want to say that was in February of 2017. Okay. I also listened to that episode. I liked it quite a bit. And I'm curious, do you remember in 2017 sort of financially what the picture was like for you guys? Yeah, totally. Um, so we were living paycheck to paycheck, even though our paychecks kept increasing. So we were kind of in this like uh, in the beginning phases of of like uh, a burgeoning career, right, where Taylor had been working her tail off as a, a commissioned salesperson for, I think, at that point, about three or four years um, and, you know, sort of steadily climbing, but really grinding it out, you know, going, working all day and then going to events at night, just trying to network and, you know, just like, you know, 12 to 16 hour day kind of stuff. And same for me, I was working at a video production company. Um, and we, you know, a typical day for us was 12 hours, uh, on set. And so, um, yeah, we were, you know, we were really in that grind and, and it's one of those things where after a few years of that, you know, you're starting to see the paychecks come in a little bit more, but since you saw that, then maybe you go out to dinner a little bit uh, more often, or, you know, you buy the nicer upgraded car, or you decide that the space in your apartment's getting a little tight, and, you know, and all the big three, and then it goes on and on from there. And that's what was happening. And I think partly it was, you know, we were so tired and burnt out from the constant grind of the hamster wheel uh, that the only thing that really, quote unquote, made it worth it or made us feel better was retail therapy in one form or another. So that's kind of the financial picture was, was in that realm. And then as far as investments, we had, uh, I, I think I had a little baby bit of student debt left, but we were hitting that as hard as we could. We knew, we knew better than to leave, leave that linger. And, um, we had luckily both been warned about credit card debt, never getting into that, uh, arena. So thank goodness for that. And then from an investment standpoint, uh, Taylor had been maxing out her 401k whenever she could. Um, I never really had an option for a 401k. I did for a short period of time. I worked at a university for uh, about a year. Um, and so I had contributed at that point. Um, but I had never maxed it out. Uh, Taylor didn't max it out right away. And those were the only vehicles we were uh, investing in at all. So no Ross were opened, you know, no uh, day trade. I I we stayed away from investments. That was kind of the financial picture in 2017. Got it. Not great. <laughs> not terrible, but not great. So one of my favorite things to talk about and one of the most common questions with FIRE pertains to your situation directly. And that's people will say, hey, I discovered FIRE and I think it's awesome. And I told my spouse about it and my spouse is not on board. How, how do I get them on board? So with that said, one of my favorite parts with the documentary, the Plane with FIRE documentary is – where I think someone asks you to make a list of like the top 10 things you value most in life. And Taylor goes through that. Can you talk a little bit about that scene? Absolutely. Um, you know, as we kind of discussed, that was sort of the catalyst for Taylor and I being on the same page and working together um, on improving our financial situation and sort of embracing the fire lifestyle. And I don't think First of all, I think that would have been a much di more difficult road. I think it's possible that Taylor may have begrudgingly come along had I not done those things, but I think that would have been a worse situation for both of us. I think resentment would have been building on her end. Probably resentment from her would eventually made it build up for me. <laughs> and uh, uh, and so, yeah, I, I look back at that as like a really, really important moment in our journey. It wasn't, you know, that that wasn't like for the cameras or anything that that was a real thing that happened. We sat down, we both separately wrote down the top 10 things that made us happy on a weekly basis. 
And we came back together and we read them together and we kind of went through them and discussed them. And what was funny was I was really nervous to see what her happiness list was because it was sort of like all hinging on that. If her list had been nice cars, beach lifestyle, you know, so on and so forth, uh, going out to nice dinners, then I would have had a much higher, you know, uh, mountain to climb. But fortunately, you know, we got married because we felt like we were very compatible. Um, you know, we had all the little right mixes to make you want to, you know, join up with someone for the rest of your life. And those values hadn't actually changed. What had changed was the way we were, you know, uh, the way we were living our lives, like, and it was sort of unconscious. And so bringing all of that back to a consciousness and saying, what's really most important to you? What's really most important to me? Our lists were really similar. It was a little bit of physical activity, getting outdoors. It didn't specify a beach. It was just be outside. Um, you know, it was like, you know, have nice dinners, but you can do that at home. It wasn't specifically go out to a place and have a chef cook you a nice dinner. It was just, we value good food. Well, you can do that at home. Um, and so, you know, one thing led to another and there was nothing on that list that felt to me like we couldn't go achieve this thing. And so I think that's probably true for most people. I bet, I bet it'd be rare to find someone who actually wrote down the top 10 things that make them happy on a weekly basis are, you know, and then a bunch of really expensive things. Um, and if that's the case, like, that's fine. That's, that's your thing. Go for it. You know, um, find, find other ways to, uh, improve your financial situation. There are ways out there, uh, including, you know, you know, burning and churning to make more money. But ultimately for us, that's not really what we were valuing. We wanted time with family. Uh, we wanted the, the, you know, the finer things in life, but, but not to the point that we were living paycheck to paycheck and becoming stressed about it. So after that exercise, Taylor's your wife, right? Yes. Okay. So did Taylor have that sort of epiphany to like, oh, like this is clearly a, a path that we can go down and we've matched up our values here? Yeah, I think it was just sort of the eye opener that she needed. And she, you know, I, I'm speaking for her because we've told this story before, but ultimately, like she she was thinking it from the standpoint of, oh, my gosh, my husband's on this kick, which he gets into these things. He goes down these rabbit holes. Right. And um, he, he now he's going to take away my car. He's going to move me off my island and I'm going to be unhappy now. And that, I think that was kind of what she was thinking. That's why I wasn't getting responses when I was sending these articles. That's why she was reading them and going, uh oh, it's not because she didn't see that it might bring value to our life. It was because she was fearful of what the repercussions would be for her. And she hadn't framed it in the way of like, are these things really bringing me happiness? She had just decided sort of unconsciously that those things were bringing her happiness. And we, we dug into it later. And the reason why I can say it with confidence is, you know, you know, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, but her, her feeling on that car was I've been working really, really hard. And since I was little, I've seen people who work really hard and are, are successful drive nice cars. So when I buy myself a nice car, that means that I have made it or that I have worked hard enough. And now have, I've achieved the success that I had thought I could when I was younger. And so it was like a milestone marker for her. But it didn't actually bring her happiness. I mean, she could care less about driving. She could care less about cars. And yet she owns this race car out in the driveway. And she didn't even own it. We were leasing it. It's even worse. Um, you know, but like at the end of the day, that's not something she truly valued. And by going through that happiness list, that was just like, you know, the start of that conversation. It's not like you just do the happiness list and now you know everything and everything's great. And you know what makes you happy. It's a long road, you know, to continue to ask yourself what you value, what matters most. Um, 
And and that can change. You know, we come back to those happiness lists. We still go back and, and look at that. And we've actually added another tactic to it, which is uh, the misery list. So it's one thing to write down the top 10 things that make you happy, but it's another thing to actually write down the top 10 things that make you miserable. <laughs> so you can kind of take it as two approaches. It's like, let's eliminate the misery from our life as best as we can. And let's highlight the things that make us happy. Those are actually two different things. So um, that's really helped us. And we, and we do that uh, every year we have um, during our anniversary in July, we sit down with us with this journal that we bought and we answer 10 questions that we had developed over the years for ourselves about the previous year. And hopefully we can hand that book off to Jovi one day, our daughter, so she can kind of see the journey that we took and the decisions that we made on a high level and why. And the questions have to do with like salaries and real estate and what we've been up to and where we've traveled and like all these things that, that we think will matter to her as she gets older. Um, and when we do that, we also then tackle our, our happiness and our misery lists and we kind of see, have they changed? Have they, have they not, you know, have we been paying enough attention to the happy stuff? Have we been paying enough attention to the misery stuff? And it's a, it's a nice system. That's awesome. Would you be willing to share the 10 questions, you know, afterwards and we can maybe put it out there? Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. I'll go dig those up and, uh, yeah, share them with you guys. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that sounds really cool. And I know, from a happiness standpoint, to be honest, I haven't read any books on it, but I've heard other people talk about it and removing negatives can often be a lot more beneficial than adding positives, which makes sense because we tend to complain about things um, often. So if you remove the negative, sometimes that's a better a better move. So do you happen to remember, Scott, um, any specific misery uh, things from the last couple of years maybe? Oh. I highly recommend this book, by the way. It's called Even Happier, a gratitude journal for daily joy and lasting fulfillment by Tal Ben-Shahar. Uh, and I think this is actually where I came up with that happiness list idea. It was either this or there. I think there was like a book previous to this, like how to be happier. You know, I don't remember what the title is, but um, really liked this. Uh, yep. I've got notes in here and everything. Here it is. Perfect. Uh, yep. Right there. So anyway. Uh, what was your question? Sorry, I just haven't had that next to me. Oh, oh, just a couple misery list items from the last couple of years. Any anything amusing come to mind? Uh, yeah, uh, for a while, travel was actually on my misery list. Uh, I was doing far too much of it, you know, too much of a good thing. Um, I was racking up miles left and right, but I didn't want to be. I was sitting, I was waking up in hotel rooms and not remembering which city I was in. Um, and that was mainly due to uh, taking the the movie around the country and supporting the film and everything. But it got to be uh, too much. I was I was sleep deprived. Uh, I had my diet was horrible, and um, yeah, and I re I remember that being a tough one. Uh, a funny one, like another or not a funny one, but another one was uh, earlier on was traffic. And that was something that was just killing me, just this slow death of like wasting your time behind the wheel uh, of, you know, 10,000 other people in front of you behind their wheel too. everybody just honking and sitting in fumes, um, you know, and it's funny, just like manifesting that, knowing that that's something we didn't want. And then, you know, moving to a place where we walk and bike everywhere and, you know, try to use our car the least amount possible. And uh, yeah, like you said, we, we removed that negative and it became a positive. Awesome. Yeah, I hate traffic too. Oh God! What you said—the misery thing. Traffic was actually the first thing that 
popped into my mind. And when I drive back from your house, Doug, there's that light at Maine. It looks like three cars through and then you have to stop again. So even if it's like two in the afternoon and there's no traffic, sometimes you'll sit at this stupid ass stoplight like three times, three yeah. cycles. I'm like, ah, I, I got to call a city and watch yeah. a formal complaint. But yeah, it's it's funny. The little things make us happy, but apparently the little things can make us miserable as well. Yeah, There's a train on the way too. Oh yeah. What a nightmare. Yeah. But one thing we, Carl and I do, we try to you know, show people that you can be successful and drive really terrible, cheap cars and still be happy. So we're we're trying to do our part with that. What, what kind of cars do you guys have right now? Uh, we only have one, and it's a uh, Lexus 450H. So it's the hybrid. Um, it's got 110,000 miles on it. I I got a really good deal on it because I had a buddy who didn't feel like going through the hassle of selling it and he was going to trade it in so he gave it to me at trade-in value nice. uh so we finally had to retire the old honda crv that we used to have that we bought in in the documentary um which i loved that thing and that thing had i think i got it like one hundred ninety-eight thousand miles or something like that before we got rid of it and it still had good value um I still see it when I drop my daughter off at kindergarten. So I'm always like, oh, look at the old girl. <laughs> she looks so good. Um, but yeah, we're driving that Lexus and we've got one car. And then I also have a uh, Super 73 R series that I bought right when COVID hit because I knew we'd be spending a lot of time, uh, you know, kind of isolated and, and in the house. And so since we live out in the mountains here, um, it's a lot of fun to, to zip around on my fast e-bike and, and have some fun, get the wind blowing in my, in my hair. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so one thing I'm, I'm writing a talk right now i have to give a, a talk this weekend and I, I was thinking about fire and values and one of the i don't know if you call it an epiphany that might be too strong of a statement but kind of back to what you were saying a couple moments ago when you think about your values i think most of the things we value most in life like health family community uh just having good friends uh the funny thing about those is none of those things really cost any money, but that's kind of the core of our happiness, and that's where a good day comes from. So the thought I had was fire kind of seems like a, a, a Band-Aid or a solution to a modern problem. We've kind of lost our way a, a little bit, so we need to have some movement or something to get us back on course, and I think that's kind of what fire is. This is probably how people in other parts of the world live, or maybe how more people in the United States lived decades ago, and we've just been caught up in consumerism and buying a bunch of shit. So do you have any thoughts on that? You know, it's funny that it seems like this this concept um, is being iterated on as we speak. It feels like, uh, A, it's being adopted, or there's a lot of interest in other countries. I know um, my book's been translated into four languages. I think I just talked to JL recently. Uh, JL Collins wrote The Simple Path to Wealth. And I think he was he was heading into like his ninth or tenth uh, translation, something like that. So it's really being adopted all over the world. Uh, so, I, you know, and I do think that some cultures may have like more of a leg up than we do on this because they're not being fed this consumeristic lifestyle through advertising every single day, 10,000 times a day. And, you know, living in the richest country in the world uh, objectively is like, you know, I mean, materialistically, at least, uh, you know, will have its effects. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, I think the human condition is universal and and we're all really just trying to achieve some level of of I don't know, happiness stasis, joy stasis, right? Like just trying to get that even flow of 
what are we doing here? You know, what, what's bringing us happiness? Why are we on this, this little blue marble? And what can we do while we're here? So I think achieving financial independence or at least pursuing financial independence, you know, one of the things that hit me early on is when I started reading about all this, you know, I think a lot of people go through this too when they first find this stuff is, uh, oh shoot, I've been really, I, I, I haven't been a steward to my future. What did I miss out on? Oh crap, what have I done, right? And then start thinking about that. Hopefully you run into the sunk cost fallacy and you embed that into your brain and you understand it and so that you can just let it go and move forward, you know? Um, and that's what I, I had some work to do to get to, to that point. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the financial independence piece felt like it was going to be a decade away. It felt like it was going to be down the road. And I would have to really put my head down and be disciplined to focus to do this. And what was so surprising was it only took a few months to feel the effects of financial freedom sort of wash over because I was suddenly in control of my finances. I didn't have to, by definition, be financially independent for the freedom to wash over. And so suddenly I felt less stress. And by feeling less stress, I had more of that stasis. And so I really think, you know, going back to the human condition thing, it's like even the pursuit of financial independence and having the control over your future, knowing generally how that's going to play out can really change the way you think, change the way you uh, spend your time. And one thing leads to another. And all of a sudden you're starting to think about, you know, psychological independence, like uh, mental independence, like. I want to feel free from the demons that are inside, or I want to feel good about the things that I'm doing. And like, I think it's just this snowball effect where you can just continuously improve upon your life because you have now built in the time and the systems to do so. And it, and it starts with money, but you know, I don't really give a shit about money. Part of my French, I don't really care about it that much. It's a necessary evil that I had to kind of wrangle and get control of so that I could focus on the things that matter the most to me. And it's such a it's a little bit loaded, but it's like such a privilege to have the time to think about myself and to think about what makes me happy and what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, but boy, do I wish that on everyone because I think the world would be a better place if everybody could, you know, have that time to do that. But most people that are in that, you know, that rat race and that on that hamster wheel, how do you have time for that? I remember feeling that way. It's like, I, I don't have time to think about myself. I'm working all day, you know, barely have time to sit down and crack a beer and have a conversation with my wife, let alone like, consider what's making me happy or what I'm doing on this planet. <laughs> right. And did you get any pushback from like family and friends or, or people in your network? Uh, yeah. And surprisingly so I, I found this stuff and I remember going down that rabbit hole and just being like, it felt like the door had opened and the light was shining in and you understood things you never understood before. And you had this confidence that you never had before. Now I understand how to invest money. Now I understand what the stock market's all about. Now I understand tax advantaged accounts. Oh my gosh, this all makes total sense. It's actually quite simple. Oh, I should tell everybody about this. I wonder if everybody's doing this. I hope they are, right? Like all this stuff's happening and you're like, and you're thinking about your loved ones. Oh man, I hope they're doing that. And then you start talking about it. Oh, no, no, no. And I didn't realize how dogmatic I had become and how crazy I sounded. <laughs> uh, money is a taboo topic. It still is, unfortunately, but I think you know, the work that Carl does and you do, Doug, and, and that I've been doing and all the people that, you know, that uh, were in my documentary, at least all these uh, new awesome bloggers, podcasters, like all this stuff. I think everybody's doing that work to try to break those barriers down, talk about money more, give it less power uh, because it's really important. Because, yeah, I, I felt that weird 
like, uh, I'd get these looks, you know, uh, from, from family, like, have you joined a cult? Uh, I'm worried about you. We've heard so many comments since like now that things have like the dust has settled and, you know, there's been some success with the project and it's been validated by major uh, news networks. Suddenly, you know, the the family, you know, they'll make comments like, you know, I was I had my reservations when I first heard about this stuff. But now I see you guys really got your heads on straight. Good for you. You know, like pat on yeah. the head kind of stuff. And it's just it's wild because I remember back when I was really feeling the I was a little worried about you. It wasn't really coming off like that. It was like, what are you guys doing? Uh, I don't really want to talk about that. You seem to think you know a lot about this stuff. Maybe you don't know as much as you think, you know, I remember feeling all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it was it was an interesting ride in the beginning. But we also had to learn how to approach it. We had to learn what we were really bringing up. You know, there's a lot of guilt and shame and um, fear and tension behind money, uh, whether, you know, and there's posturing too, right? Like people will not talk about money so that they can posture that they might be doing better than they maybe are or whatever, because they are assigning that net worth with their self-worth. And that's like that trap that a lot of people get in. And so we try to break that down as much as we can. We have, you know, we got really, we had an interesting experiment by moving to Bend, uh, from San Diego when we found this stuff, we were in San Diego and then we moved to Bend pretty shortly after. And when we did that, it was like we can intentionally grow our community here, you know. And so since we had been in the throes of this whole project, we knew that we wanted to lead with, uh, you know, we wanted to lead with the openness of talking about money and what we're up to so that if someone was curious, we could, we could talk to them, we could help them potentially, you know, that was a, that was a priority for us. So we did that. And I can't tell you how for like, for the first time ever, it felt like friendships were formed and trust was built way faster than it ever had been before. Because I think knocking down those barriers and showing that we would talk about this stuff openly, you know, from from where our net worth was to what our salaries were to how much we were paying for this thing or that thing to some hack we found that would would help anyone out who knew about it, you know, like like uh, fully funding your Roth every year, like if you can, you know, that kind of stuff like that stuff just broke down so many barriers and we got to get to the to the crux, to the meat of the friendship to who we are, uh, way faster. So we didn't have to go through all that rigmarole of what do you do? Do you enjoy that? Oh, the weather's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get so into true. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's so weird how money is, uh, I, I wish we were all more open about it. I think it would solve so many problems and we'd all be better off. It, it cracks me up how, Maybe this is an American thing too. There's these lists that come out, like the top ten billionaires under thirty, or the top the, the richest people in the world. You always see that in these magazines, and it's pretty ridiculous that we worship all that. We should worship people who are trying to help each other out, not just accumulating a massive pile of cash. Here, so. here, Carl and I, and I gotta say, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I remember specifically being inspi being inspired by you. Uh, you know, Mr. 1500, right? You you were very open about that that whole process and that journey. Um, you even knew how many days it would take and you were sharing all of that with us and giving us those milestones. And those were some of the first, those are some of the first times where I saw real numbers from people's personal journey. And that was sort of, I remember that being like the the process of breaking, 
uh, from keeping that stuff inside. And like, I just really appreciated that. Of course, you were in like a pseudo anonymous uh, uh, position at that time, which is now becoming all the rage on Web3. But uh, but, uh, you, you know, you were early for your days. But I appreciate that. Yeah, that was the whole purpose of it. Just to, I wanted to talk about money so we don't have to talk it, talk about it anymore. Let's get it out in the open, figure out how we can help each other, and then move on to what really matters. You said something a moment ago. You said you you hate thinking about money or something like that. And that's that's the really great thing about having a lot of money is that you don't have to think about it. It eliminates those that mental bandwidth from your life because it's toxic if you always have to be thinking about money. So, yeah. Yeah. Hate's a strong word. So I should probably rescind that a little bit. I just, it's not my favorite thing, you know, that's really what it comes down to. But yeah, uh, we owe you a debt of gratitude, Carl, for sure. Thank you. (laughs) Nice, Carl. Well, what does a perfect day look like? like these days. We didn't prep you ahead of time on this, so feel free to take a moment or we can come back to it. But if you have something queued up, yeah, what's it look like these days? A perfect day. I wake up without an alarm and yet it's early enough where I can still uh, make sure I'm on time to take my daughter to kindergarten. Uh, We stand around outside uh, in these lines and they all go shuffle in uh, following their teacher. And then when they walk up these stairs, they look back and they wave to the parents. And it is like my favorite thing in the world right now. So um, I try not to miss that. Uh, very, very rarely do I miss that. And then it's kind of fun because we're meeting the parents and, you know, chit chatting about all these funny things that these kids are doing when they come home and whatever. And then uh, honestly, uh, you know, a group of friends that we've become very close with, which we sort of potted up during the COVID thing. So we would have some semblance of the social life for the kids and for ourselves. Uh, we all, you know, all those kids go to the same school. So we've started a morning walk routine and we walk about three or four miles along the Deschutes River up and down some of these little valleys and canyons. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. We spent about an hour, hour and a half doing that, walking and talking talking about the latest thing that's got that we've got going on or some new trip we're going to take soon or whatever it is. And, um, and then come home, do a little bit of purposeful work. Um, currently we're building this course, uh, and we're actually in the throes of this course right now. Uh, we've called it compound and, uh, by we, it's a friend of mine, Rob Shea, who's a certified financial planner. So he's, he's got the expertise that I don't have. Um, and I hope to bring some of the perspectives that I've learned on my journey so far. And so far, it's been a ton of fun. We've got a great set of students who are now becoming friends. We're all hanging out. We're learning from each other. We're sharing. We're being open. It's just it's very meaningful work uh, because everyone's, you know, working together to improve their lives. So we do that for a couple hours, let's say. And then uh, and then maybe it's time to go get outside and do some kind of physical activity, preferably competitive if possible. Uh <laughs> And then uh, come home, maybe make a good dinner with some with some friends or just the family, and uh, that that would pretty much wrap it up for me. And that that's pretty much how I'm living my life right now. So that's an easy answer for me right now. Beautiful. That sounds pretty good. I want to come out there just so I can get in on that morning walk. We we did that a little bit during COVID, but then I kind of died off when the really bad parts of COVID died off. So yeah, I, I kind of want to move to Ben now, Doug. Yeah, you, you want to come with? It sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, I was going to say anytime. so much beer there too. So much beer. There's such good water out here. They got to make good beer out of it. Oh yeah. You know what's really funny too is we can smell the malt in the morning on those walks because uh, <laughs> the Deschutes 
the Deschutes Brewery is right on the Deschutes River. And uh, when they're brewing up that that beautiful Mirapon Pale Ale, oh, you can smell it. It's in the air, and I love it. There's like deer hanging out everywhere, you know, in the in the city. I'm I'm not even kidding. It's like idyllic. Wow. Yeah, and uh, Deschutes one of my favorite breweries. I haven't been to Bend, but we always stop by the the tap room in Portland when we're there. And I just bought Black Butte Porter, one of my favorite porters. Um, I drink with the seasons. It's fall right now, so. Love that. Beer. That's awesome. Hey, we can take you to Black Butte if you come on out. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, I forgot. That's, it's quite, a that's thing. quite close to one of my favorite fishing holes, the Metolius River. So, yeah, it's gorgeous out here. And while while we're making um, tangents here, you actually made us some hot sauce here on the table, which Carl and I are going to have in a future video. And can you just tell us a little bit about it? I sure can. I was inspired by a guy named Brad Leone, uh, who, uh, cooks for like Bon Appetit, I think. And he's got this show called it's alive with Brad. It's so fun. Have you seen it? I I've, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's such a fun show. I love the editing on that show and he's such a great personality and it's gotten to the point where, uh, Jovi will come down in the morning on Saturday mornings and that's our Saturday morning rituals. We see what Brad's got cooked up for us. We're laughing and having a good time, but he did one on, he's big into pickling and fermenting and whatnot. And I'd never done those things. My grandma used to do it all the time, I remember. And so, uh, I was kind of interested in doing it. So, and I love hot sauce and we've got probably 50 bottles in our refrigerator. Cause every time we see a new one that looks delicious, you know, just got to buy it. And, uh, and so, uh, anyway, uh, I thought, why not make my own? So, uh, Brad had done a fermented pepper hot sauce, uh, one time. So I followed loosely followed his his lead on that and since i since then i've made like four or five batches so i'm trying to improve it slowly and i'm learning about the fermentation process and how that whole thing works uh the first batch uh i had a bottle blow up in my refrigerator because i didn't realize i needed to stop the fermentation process (laughs) before bottling it um and i learned about sanitizing so those bottles are very very clean uh (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and it's been a ton of fun, but, um, it's been kind of a hit around here. It's a fun thing to gift. So I usually have got a batch going around Christmas time and, um, yeah, and, but I need to venture out. This is the, uh, pineapple habanero and I've been really trying to work on this one. I want to perfect it before I move on. It's not quite there yet, but this, this will have a little more tartness on the palate. If you don't have anything to eat it with right now, uh, than I would have liked. But in general, I think the flavor is definitely there. It's complex and it's got a nice bite to it. Um, but I'm trying to up the bite a bit and bring down the tartness a bit. Um, so that's my, that's my critique on that sauce. (laughs) All right. We'll send you notes. We very much appreciate you making this and sending it over. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was fun to do. And Jovi had a hand in it too. She's always excited in the mornings to burp the the fermentation bottle. Yeah. You got to burp it. I don't have the fancy ones that automatically burp themselves. So for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, basically you put a brine mixture of like salt and sugar and water, and then you put all of your peppers and all the ingredients that you want into this jar and you let it sit for like two weeks. But what you're doing is you're creating this, uh, this reaction of fermentation and the yeast is getting all happy and all kinds of little biological things are happening in the brine and it creates uh, CO2. And so you have to let that out of the, the bottle, which is sealed uh, so that you don't have any, uh, nasty bacteria get in, you know, and then you can get mold and things like that. And so every once in a while, you just got to pop the top so that, that, uh, gas can get released and it's very pungent. It stinks up the <laughs> whole kitchen every time you burp it. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I got to say, Doug, I'm getting a little bit nervous for our hot sauce challenge. So I had heard like uh, the ghost pepper was the hottest one. And then Doug said, oh, no, I've got, I bought the Carolina Reapers and they're hotter than ghost peppers. So I'm probably, can this actually kill you? Because I might be dead after our hot sauce challenge. And it doesn't sound like a fun way to die either. Yeah. I think just about anything can kill you. But I'm not 100%. I don't think that hot sauce can kill us. But So Scott, tell us about your new project. Yeah, th thanks for asking about it. Uh, it's called hellocompound.com, and uh, that's to pay reverence to uh, the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. And uh, I built it with a friend of mine, Rob Shea, who's a certified financial planner. So he brings the, the technical background uh, and the answers that I wouldn't have, or question, uh, answers that I wouldn't be able to answer um, to the more complex questions. And I, I like to think I bring uh, an idea of, you know, the emotional side and the journey that I took over the last four or five years with this project. Um, and I'm also able to, you know, ask friends of mine to join for guest speaking and things like that. We're in our first uh, iteration of that. So we've got a whole group of students that come twice a week for six weeks and we all get together and we learn basically nuts and bolts from start to finish how to how to start a financial independence journey. Uh, and it's just been a wonderful ride. And Carl, you know, when I started the Playing With Fire project, I'm sure you'll appreciate this. You know, I was so inspired by fire and and trying to get uh, that idea out to as many eyeballs as possible. But, it, you know, my initial journey there, it was a selfish endeavor because I was trying to figure out how to implement fire for myself. Um, but shortly thereafter, I realized how impactful this could be if everyone knew about it. I started to, started to see the the deficiency of the lack of uh, financial literacy across the country. And so I thought, what could I do to help with that? And coming from the world of video production and knowing at that time that there wasn't a lot of video out there about fire, I wanted to do my parts. So that's how the documentary kind of became a thing. And we wanted to create something that was sort of a high level inspirational piece that was this is how this stuff works. And, you know, most people will be able to pursue this in one form or another. And so we're going to try to tell our story in hopes that it inspires you to take on your version of this journey yourself. And that was great and all, but it actually worked and it worked in that inspiration. And then I was getting all of these messages of, hey, I have a question about this. I have a question about that. Is this really for me? That kind of stuff. And it was kind of an overload. Like I couldn't really answer each person individually and answer all those individual questions. So out of that came this idea to create this, this course that's sort of ever evolving, um, ever living. It's accountability, it's peer to peer, it's community building. It's all those things that could be missing if you're just on a Facebook group or if you found this stuff, but you don't really know what question to ask next or which step to take first or what to do with that prior 401. There's all these things. And so we just decided to put it all down in a six week course where when you come out the other end, you feel like you have that foundational confidence that I know I found through a lot of DIY, a lot of questions, a lot of answers, a lot of searching, uh, you know, going around the country, getting it, you know, getting to talk to the foremost experts on this stuff. I, I had that advantage. And so I wanted to bring that all into one course and we did so, uh, and it's been a ton of fun. So we're going to be launching the second cohort, the second group of students in January, um, probably January 25th. And, uh, we're going to be opening that up here very soon at hellocompound.com. 
Very cool. Any specific challenges with putting together the course or marketing it or anything like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we found a lot of high intent, um, but we didn't have the conversions we thought we'd have and we weren't sure why. And so it's been really fun, too, to actually build on something. So in the past, you know, my my work has been really subjective, right? It's like I have one shot at making a documentary. I have one shot at writing a book, right? Like you make that thing, you hope it does what you had hoped it would do, and you you at one point you have to say it's finished, ship it, and and then you hope for the best, and then you support that thing, and every day is a new thing, right? How else can I get this out there? But with this, it's it's so much more objective. It's and and we can iterate in real time. It's like you don't have to A, B test against, you know, all this like computer stuff. You can literally ask the students, did you enjoy this? Did you get something from this? What else could should we have done? And they and they give us that feedback and then we can incorporate it. And then next time that class just gets even better. So it's been really fun to, to learn that way and build that way. That's something I haven't had in a long time. But um, but yeah, challenges wise, um, you know, it's it's. It's all about I think it's all about trust, but it's also about initiation. You know, I think it's tough to commit yourself to something like a six week thing. Um, and so it's like it's I think that's our job over the next year or two is to really find ways to break down those fear barriers and and up those commitment levels. And I think we'll be able to do that when we have more and more students, you know, that can kind of come to our aid in that way and showcase the testimonial side of like this is what has happened since I took this course which we're seeing in real time. And that's what's so much fun about it. And what brings so much purpose is like, it happens every class. You get these light bulb moments and these nuggets where you may have not thought of it as a very big you know, information piece. It just kind of happened to slip into the course. And all of a sudden it's the thing that everyone has a question about. And so you kind of pick up on those things. And by the end of the course, you're talking about it and they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go do this right now. Like I completely forgot I had to add my beneficiaries to my retirement accounts, you know, or I knew I needed to do that, but I hadn't done it. And now I've done it. And it's like, holy smokes, those those have massive implications to your futures and multiple generations potentially. Uh, so, it's yeah, I think I think we've got a ways to go. But, um, yeah, that's the. I don't know. I was talking about challenges. I always turned it into yeah. some kind of positive thing. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's, that's a good optimistic uh, way to look at life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's super cool. The, the thing about money is if you can get someone to make some tweaks and, and get that part of their life right, you can, you'll change their entire life. And if they're young, you're it's just the, the whole compound, their life is going to be benefiting from that. The compound benefits of not just the money, but all the other benefits. Like Scott, you said earlier, you could focus on yourself more. You have more mental bandwidth. And yeah, it sounds cliche, but if you just change one person, you're totally going to make a huge difference in that person. And who knows the secondary effects of that person uh, that's going to rub off on other people and boom, uh, super cool. Do you follow up with people after the initial course is done? Is there any kind of like group communication like Slack or Discord or perhaps a Facebook group? Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, so currently we're we're keeping the Slack channel open. And uh, so alumni will be able to stay in the Slack group in certain channels. And so as we build more and more, uh, you know, cohorts, uh, those alumni, those students will all be in that in those channels. And then the new cohort will have their own set of channels, you know, so that they can kind of stay within their little bubble at the time. And then also we're allowing previous students to continue on and, and have access to the videos 
uh, of the courses that they have already gone through um, and access to future courses because these courses will iterate and continue to improve and we will be covering things that have happened, right? Like this new, like this new bill, there are some new, uh, you know, things coming out of this new bill. Like for instance, I think the, uh, the limits have increased on 401ks just recently. So, you know, as things like that happen, uh, we'll be updating and iterating the curriculum. So, uh, our past students will always have access to that. So the idea is that we'll just compound, are, are uh, I'm just kidding. I did I. <laughs> Sorry. It's very meta. It's too meta. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the idea is is that you know you join the the community and it's not just a one stop six week shop and that's the end of the story. See you later. Thanks. Bye. It's uh it's more like hey we're building we're building something different here. So that's been a ton of fun and it's just getting started. So. Um, you know I, I don't know if you guys have been dabbling in that idea either, but you mentioned Discord. Um, it was fun to kind of go through all the different options right now. There's Facebook, which, you know, the corporation seems evil, but the groups are really powerful. Maybe one of the only powerful things left in that platform. And then you have like Discord, which seems kind of crazy, right? Because it's like servers and it's just, I don't know, the uh, the onboarding seems quite technical, um, even though it's so powerful. I really like Discord once I got in there. Um, then you have Slack, which I think a lot of people are using at work and it's pretty intuitive to pick up, you know, like threads and, and channels and that's about it, DMs and that's about it. Um, and then there's these new ones like circle, which is kind of like a Facebook groups, but only Facebook groups. Um, so there's all these platforms out there and it seems like there's a new one every day. I don't, have you guys found any that you liked or are you familiar with these at all? Gosh, yeah, I try to stay away from a lot of stuff, but I've dabbled in each one of the ones you mentioned. And Carl and I haven't put together a Discord group for this show, but you have one for HQ, right? How do you like that? Yeah, we do. It's okay. We we had Slack originally, and the issue with that is, unless you pay them a lot of money, I think the old threads die off. So there were members of the HQ, our co-working space, who wanted to look at conversations that they had remembered from a year ago. And they mm. couldn't because they fall off and unless you pay them. So Discord does not have that issue so far, but it's more difficult. The threading in Discord is pretty terrible. So I don't know. I thought Slack was a little bit nicer to use as well. If, if Discord had more a better way to do threads, I'd like it more. Yeah. Man, well, hopefully by the time we get to the point where the Slack channels like are falling off and we need to pay them more money, there will be a new option out there because – I am familiar with like the impending doom of all the costs that will be incurred with Slack eventually <laughs> as we continue to build this, but we'll see. Very yeah, it's super cool. So again, your next class starts in January and people could find out about it at hellocompound.com. What is, there's a limit to the number of students you allow in the class too, correct? Yes. Uh, we've limited it so that each experience is uh, manageable. Um, I, I actually went and took quite a few cohort courses myself before we launched this so we could understand the pros and cons and what we liked and what we didn't like. And I took a course with uh, about 50 students and there was a ton of camaraderie. I still talk to many of those students today. Um, we're updating each other on the things we're building. It's been really wonderful and vibrant. It's sort of like what we want to build. And then I also took one with, uh, I think there was 1500 students in the cohort. It was wild. And like, it was great in a lot of ways. The content was amazing. That's why there were so many students and it was a big benefit. Um, but they had zoom chat enabled, uh, and the zoom chat with a thousand students was 
unbelievably distracting. I couldn't believe it was happening. Like, I, and you can't just delete the chat off, like because of the way the the course was structured. You kind of needed to be a part of that a little bit, but there was so much fat in there that you didn't want, and so it was just wild. So anyway, um, yes, we do cap it. Uh, we're going to cap uh, the next cohort at seventy five students, and so because we think with seventy five students. Uh, based on what we've seen with attendance, which has been wonderful, there is a, you know, a slight drop off each class, you know, depending on people's personal schedules and whatnot, which is why we also record the courses. And that's also been really fun seeing students miss a course, but then like come into Slack and let us know why they're missing and that they will definitely be checking out the recording. It's like, it's kind of funny to be in that position because I always I wasn't the best student in the world and now I feel like I'm the teacher. <laughs> um, so it's kind of funny because we haven't asked them to do that, but I love that because that's showing the accountability is actually happening. Like they feel accountable to us to let us know where they're at um, during that period of time because that's our time to grow and learn and like that's real. I did I didn't know if that would be kind of fluffy or not, but it's real. It's actually happening that way. So that's been fun. So we. Like I said, we assume with 75 students, like maybe 10 to 15 at that rate, 10 or 15 maybe wouldn't show up on any given day. So you'd have about 50 in the class, which I think is like a really that's a sweet spot. I think you can do 75, too. But once you get up into 100, it starts to get kind of unruly on the on the chats and Q&A's and stuff. There's just so many questions that come up and it's not as focused. So, yeah, sure. Very cool. Well, this has been amazing and it's been great to chat with you anywhere else people should find you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This is really fun. I've been enjoying uh, the podcast and watch, and I love the name. <laughs> and it's really nice to meet you, Doug. I've, I've heard a lot about you. I've been following you for a while. So this is really cool. Um, yeah. Uh, you can find me. My, my favorite platform is Twitter. Uh, I'm at Play With Fire Co. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, you know, my project Playing With Fire is uh, playingwithfire.co. And you can find the documentary, uh, the book, and then we've got a bunch of tools that we've built over the years, um, retirement calculator. We've got this cool used car calculator that has all kinds of like price maps and uh, cost to drive calculators and stuff. So we've got some stuff over there for you. But um, yeah, I'm on I'm on Instagram and Facebook as well, but I don't really check it too often. I got to be honest. Very cool. Yeah, we'll put links so people can get to all your stuff, their favorite channel, of course. And yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having me.